We are at the beginning of an infrastructure shift on par with the Industrial Revolution. As the effects of climate change become ever more real and the time frames become ever shorter, we must ask ourselves, are we capable of changing how we live and leave a mark on this planet in a way that is actually meaningful? That question has led me here. I'm in Dover in the southeast of England to meet the people and organisations trying to bring sustainable solutions to one of the world's most important sectors, shipping. 33% of the UK's trade with the EU comes through this one port. Last year, over 6.5 million passengers travelled on this route. In this episode, we look at the shipping industry as a case study to see just how much has to be taken into consideration on so many levels in order to work towards a carbon-neutral future. What are the enormous challenges currently being faced and what goes into building the ship of the future? All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Now, if you're a human being on planet Earth, the chances are you rely on shipping to uphold your day-to-day life. Some estimates put the amount of commerce transported worldwide by ships as high as 90%. That's food, medicine, cars, pretty much anything you can think of. But all of that comes at a carbon cost. To find out more, I'm jumping aboard a very special vessel to speak to a couple of people who can outline the scale of shipping's carbon footprint. Risk and sustainability expert Lisa Lewis and PowerCon's Peter Selway. So the shipping industry globally produces about 3% of greenhouse gases, but it's responsible for transporting 90% of the world's commerce, so it's extraordinarily critical to the world's economy. If shipping were a country, it would be the sixth largest emitter in the world. To jump on that point and to make sure that we're all on the, on the same boat, as it were, it would be so much higher if we weren't using boats to transport stuff around. Yes, so shipping's an extraordinarily efficient way of transporting moving goods and people. On a short sea route, uh, such as Dover, Calais, a ship like this would emit about 16 grams of CO2 per kilometre, whereas road transport would use about 62 grams of CO2 per tonne kilometre. So it's much more efficient, and on longer routes, it becomes even more efficient still. If we remember that shipping is 3% of global emissions, road equates to approximately 15%. Aviation is only 2.5% of global emissions, but the efficiency of using jet fuel is far less efficient than a ship engine. Given that this is still the best way of transporting all the world's goods, it is still kind of the plan to reduce the amount of CO2 being produced. Is there a set amount for a set date? The UK government has committed to decarbonising shipping by 2050. To be on track to hit that target, we need to reduce emissions by 15% between 2022 and 2030. And at the moment, unfortunately, we're not on track to do that. This is all talking about carbon dioxide. Is that the only greenhouse gas or harmful substance that is in play when we're talking about trying to reduce the footprint of shipping? No, absolutely not. Combustion isn't 100% efficient. At its peak, it's approximately 65% efficient for the main engines and compare that to a petrol car, which is 35% efficient. And when it's not 100% efficient, you get waste products coming off. If you're burning fossil fuels, you're going to get nitrous oxide, sulfur oxides, black carbon particulates, fugitive emissions, unburnt fuel gets leaked. There are lots of things in that that can damage the climate and human health. Most ports are in town and city centres 
And so these emissions that are coming out, and often when you see pictures of a ship, you might see some black carbon coming out of the chimney stack. What you can't see is the nitrous dioxide and sulphur dioxides. And the problem is with even the low sulphur fuel that's been used at the moment has still got a 100 times the sulphur content of road diesel. And that pollution is generally being blown straight over these towns and city centres. So this is almost a direct public health concern as well as a general climatic concern as well. Absolutely. I think shipping, by its nature, is out in the ocean and I think it's forgotten about. But although it's a really efficient way of transporting goods and people, there's still big problems and, and they're big polluters. And particularly when that pollution is close to humans, the impact on human health is considerable. The modern experience of using a ferry or a cruise ship is, is very much more like a, a bubble than, than actually exposure and, and experiencing the maritime world. People, you know, drive on in a car, they go in very comfortable lounges, uh, they use the restaurant, they might wander out for a quick walk on the deck on the prom, but often not at all on a short crossing between Dover and Calais. Therefore, people are in some way disconnected and it's a, more of a sanitised journey. All of what you're saying to me right now makes this sound like a really multi-leveled multi-faceted problem to solve so decarbonisation as an aspiration has got so many problems that will potentially create friction on the journey towards that target state we've got disconnection in public policy drivers towards human health and drivers towards decarbonisation are not necessarily always aligned the technology some of its in proof of concept stage there are multiple options on the table for so for a ship designer ship owner ship operator which way are you going to go and depending on your investment you could have a long time to get that payback in terms of performance change and you could be many years down the road in your design or construction when the public policy changes and then what will you do and in terms of all the potential solutions around the alternative fuels there are many complexities and constraints around that which peter can go into more detail with these ships are some of the biggest machines humans have ever created so the amount of energy they use is also absolutely huge and there's lots of alternative fuels I've been looking at. If you want to hit these 2050 decarbonisation targets, there's lots of fuels like hydrogen, methanol, ammonia. They've all got lots of disadvantages. There's none of them that's an obvious alternative and none that producing anything like the quantities that are going to need to fuel vessels of this sort of scale. And so one of the most obvious alternative fuels is electricity. And there's two elements of electrification of vessels. When a ship comes into a port, instead of running its diesel engines, it plugs into the electrical supply from the grid from the country and uses that to supply electricity whilst at birth, what's called shore power. The other solution is, in addition to shore power, if we can provide enough electricity that batteries on board of ships, like the ship we're on at the moment, can store that energy and use that energy for propulsion. Fundamentally, what we're trying to do here is decarbonise shipping by 2050 at, at, at the absolute latest. Yes, there are lots of alternative fuels. Yes, there's lots of issues with those. But we can't let that prevent us making the right measures now to try and decarbonise. And one of the big challenges we have with the shipping industry is that a ship will last typically 30 years, whereas a car might last, what, 10 years? Ships now will be still in use in 2050, so we've got to decarbonise now. And the only consensus fuel is electricity, because that's all these ships are using electricity at the moment. So electricity, for the moment, seems to be the front-runner in decarbonising the shipping industry. And one of the solutions is real, and here, in fact, I'm standing on it right now. The P&O Pioneer is the biggest hybrid ferry in the world, taking people, vehicles and freight between Dover and Calais. 
I'm going to meet the man who can give me an access all areas tour of it. I'm Ross Barrett. I'm the ship of the future director for P&O Ferries, uh, responsible for the build of the two new fusion class ships that we have currently sailing between Dover and Calais. First thing, and it was the thing that was sold to me by everyone who encouraged me to come on the ship, we have a glass of water in front of us and we're doing what I like to call the reverse Jurassic Park test. There is no movement on this cup of water and that's amazing. How is this possible? Well, we're actually using Azipod technology on this ship coupled with uh, the hybrid batteries and uh, a much more efficient hull line which actually streamlines the vessel itself so what we actually see is no vibration from this vessel at all so in your reverse jurassic park moment uh, that's the reason why the ship is so smooth and attuned to a little bit like wearing noise cancelling headphones now i've always known ships to have a front end and a back end and then to look different we're on a weird looking ship and it's making me feel nervous why is this such a strange shape So this is actually a double-ended ferry. It's actually the world's largest hybrid double-ended ferry. So that actually negates us having to turn in port because we don't have a forward and a back end. It means we are a drive-on, drive-off service, uh, and that then gives us a saving that means we can leave slightly earlier, not turn, and then deliver uh, customers by sailing slightly slower. But it's not just about the hybrid engine as well. There's all kinds of stuff going on on this ship to help reduce its carbon footprint and impact. That's right. We've got a huge amount of technology actually fitted to this vessel. We've got heat recovery systems. We've got power management systems that help us balance the loads. We've got a, a very intelligent lighting system that allows lights to be able to dim. We can be able to control all of the zones on the ship so we can shut down areas and heat certain other areas. We can take heat through our recovery systems that actually regenerates back without having to use boilers and, and provide that heat back into customer spaces as well. But we've also got very clever glass on this ship as well. So we call it the smart glass. And what you can actually do is dim the glass, lighten the glass, depending on how much light we want actually into the vessel, how much heat we want actually reflect back out as well. This combined with the fact that if I shut my eyes, I wouldn't believe I was on a boat right now. I'm fully intrigued and I would love to go and have a look at the inner workings of this boat. We've come down the decks to the engine level, starting off the tour in the diesel generator room. There's not much to say, which is probably a good thing given the noise, but this, this is the past. Let's go see the future. My name is Dimitri. I'm a chief engineer of Pride of Pioneer. We are in a battery room now. That's one battery room of four. That's about four megawatt hours. And normally we're using them in a hybrid mode. That means we depart from port on one generator only and the rest power is supplied by the batteries. Approximately within 30-40 minutes, depends on the power demand, the battery is depleted and they, then we need to charge them. Second generator kicks in and charge the batteries at the same time. Rival port, we recharge the batteries to their 80%, that's a healthy state of charge and we are ready for departure again. We can run purely on the batteries with zero emission if needed. They will not last long now, but we have a capacity to increase the batteries, actually double the quantity. We've actually got capacity now in these rooms. It's been designed to actually increase these four battery rooms from 8.8 to 13.2 megawatts right now without any infrastructure change. I appreciate it's not the quietest in the world, but we are in, you know, the bowels of the ship. It is, it's really not that loud at all. No, and one of the key things that we're actually really proud of this vessel is just how quiet this ship is with the technology that's been 
employed actually across the vessel as well, from its hull lines to its azipods to the vibration. Everything associated with this ship just makes sure that we give not only the crew the best possible environment that they can work in, but the passengers as well. We've come below the waterline, and now we're in um, what I think is a spaceship. To my left is the open sea, and to my right is the engine room, uh, and in between is nothing. Why is that? The void space is for safety reasons. It's a double skin hull if there will be a collision or integrity of water, so the ship will stay safe. It will fill up just a void space, and no machinery will be affected. So we're stood in the Azipod room, and uh, the way... An Azipod works is a little bit unlike a conventional ship. So on a conventional ship, you tend to have two propellers on the back end of the vessel called the stem. They tend to counter-rotate, which then provides you thrust moving you through the water. Now, an Azipod actually works in the opposite direction. So it actually spins and drags you through the water in a pulling motion rather than in a, in a thrusting, pushing motion. Now, this vessel is actually equipped with four Azipods. So in order to propel without the drag, we actually run two of the aft azipods at 70% and two of the forward azipods at 30% which give us the efficiency of dragging the vessel through the water. So the nice thing about azipods is they actually rotate 306 degrees underwater. So if we want to move the ship completely sideways in one motion, we can actually put all the pods facing the direction that we want the vessel to move and actually shift the ship completely in a sideways motion known as crabbing. That's great, I love that. Well, that was absolutely fascinating, and thank you to everyone for talking me through that. We're back up here with Ross. The question, therefore, though, I have to ask, the whole point of this, how much of an impact does all of this have on the CO2 emissions of this ship? So the key saving for this vessel, it being a unique double-ended design, means that we don't actually have to turn in port. And when you turn a vessel in port in order to berth at both Dover or Calais, you actually burn about seven minutes extra fuel on each of those movements so in fuss we're actually saving about 14 minutes of time now that actually means we can sail slightly slower so rather than a service speed of about 19.5 knots we can actually sail at 17.6 knots still hold the same schedule in terms of how we sail and delivering our customers and our service on time but more than that what it means is that we're actually starting to reduce our footprint from a fuel perspective so this ship will actually burn about four tons of crossing compared to our previous vessels which are about six across and so you can actually see from that we're saving around about 40 percent in terms of the fuel that we're actually burning on this vessel and that actually then helps towards our carbon footprint reduction with a bigger vessel as well we actually carry more freight using less fuel and a lot less carbon emissions so this is proof of concept it works people want to use it and in my opinion it's just really cool so where do we go from here what does it take for a hybrid or even fully electric ship to become the norm Well, like with every climate-oriented topic, now we come to the part of the show with more questions and challenges than answers. And probably the biggest challenge is, unsurprisingly, power. I'm going back in to chat with Lisa Lewis and Peter Selway again. A vessel like this, a hybrid vessel, has got two elements to it. First of all, when it's in at birth, it can have a hotel load. So this is a load that needs to provide electricity for lights, for ventilation, all the basic functions of the vessel. And in a ship like this, that's about 1.7 megawatts of power. Now, to give you an idea, a megawatt is about, if you think of a 5-watt LED 
light bulb, a megabot would be 200,000 of those light bulbs. To recharge those 8 megawatts of batteries you got on board, you would need 20 megawatts. So that's equivalent to 4 million light bulbs of power. If So if you imagine the size of the cables, the sheer volume of power that you need to provide the power for the energy for this ship is just astronomical. Two things leap to mind immediately. One, Dover is, and to an extent Calais, is kind of out of the way. You've got to get all of this power down maybe not the biggest grid in the world and then charge up these ships and the other problem is you've got 45 50 minutes to do it that's right for decades we had centralized power stations in the in the coal fields of nottinghamshire these massive coal power stations that generated vast amounts of power and distributed the power out around the country the challenge with that was that the further you were away from those power stations, the smaller the connections became. It's like a human body and the, the veins. Ports, by the very nature, are on the outside of a country. And if you've got the infrastructure that's been built up around this infrastructure being large in the middle of the country, it's a real challenge getting these huge amounts of power to these ports. But these things are changing, particularly with the advent of renewable energy sources. Uh, a lot of offshore wind farms coming online, and also local production, solar panels and energy production, means that the grid is becoming far more complex. And trying to manage this power demand is one of the biggest challenges we're going to face in decarbonising shipping. In terms of the availability of energy, whether it's electricity or another fuel source such as hydrogen, nuclear, ammonia, there's increasingly a need to move away from a centralised system to a decentralised system and have it where it's needed, so local hubs. The problem with that is if you have on-site or offshore renewable generation such as wind turbines, most ports are in areas where there is protected wildlife. So there are prohibitions about putting up a wind turbine. If you're talking about on-site generation or storage even of something as toxic as ammonia, that will be a problem for the people that live and work in those ports. And I guess the question itself of you have to generate all of this electricity as well, even if it's a, you know, a nuclear power station or something like that. Quite a lot of the electricity we're currently generating is by burning fossil fuels. So there's also the idea that you might end up burning fossil fuels to get this electricity in the first place. That's exactly right. In terms of the, the source of the electricity that's coming to the batteries or coming to the shore power, if it isn't green, it's just as bad as if we had a diesel engine running. So there are various policy instruments to encourage people to move away from that. Things like the insistence on using shore power at European ports, that's coming in by 2030. Again, within the EU and, and also coming to the UK is the emission trading scheme to encourage people to think about the source of the energy and if it's from a green supply. So there are lots of debates about if we're just using electricity to provide shore power or to provide energy for for its batteries aren't we just changing the problem instead of the diesel engines on board the ship producing this electricity, aren't we just changing it to a power station but in actual fact the UK grid operates around about 150 grams per kilowatt hour whereas the engines on board a, a large vessel typically produces about 650 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour so it is far more efficient to use grid electricity to provide this this energy than trying to generate it with 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 diesel engines and also as we're seeing the uk grid is gradually being decarbonized we're seeing more renewable energies coming online so that figure 150 grams per kilowatt hour is only going to come down 
So those are the demands and some of the potential solutions. But we've spoken a lot about the ships so far and somewhat neglected the other element of the route, the ports. The port of Dover isn't owned by the government. It's owned by the Dover Harbour Board and is therefore independent. So whilst £144 billion of commerce comes through here every year, the annual turnover is less than £60 million. This means every decision about infrastructure change, particularly on a scale like this, has to be meticulously researched. So with all of these caveats around electricity, what considerations are the Port of Dover making throughout all of this transitionary period? It's time to talk to Port of Dover's Megan Turner about their plans going forward. So the P&O Pioneer is just one of a set of two sister vessels. So her sister vessel, which is just the same vessel uh, again, will be coming to the Dover Calais route in kind of January, February time and going into service shortly after that. So we'll then have the two hybrids. But long term after that, um, all three of our ferry operators have actually stated their plans to either hybridise or go fully electric with one of the ferry operators looking to be fully electric by 2030. So that will be five fully electric ferries on the route. The elephant in the room really is, though, the question of how you power stuff because as terrible for the environment that fossil fuels are they are a a decentralized and very quick and easy way of powering stuff and an electric boat you kind of need to power at each end or power at what end and that surely puts a great amount of strain on the grid wherever you have to charge up even if it's just one yeah, definitely. So a lot of the work that we've kind of done collectively as a corridor so far has been has been looking at that electrical demand and what that's going to look like. Um, on current technology, the vessels do have to charge at both ends just because of the current technology of batteries means they can't do a whole round trip. Um, so we've done a lot of work of what that's going to look like, what, what is the size of that challenge. And we think it's about 20 times more the electricity than we currently have into the port. So into the eastern docks, which is this very terminal, we have about four megawatts currently that comes to the port. And we, we look to need possibly around 160 if all 13 vessels were to fully electrify. So that's a huge 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 step up from where we are currently so a lot of been work um, has been focused on how do we do that because as well it's not as simple as just taking it from the grid because the uk grid isn't fully decarbonized so we would like to look at a fully decarbonized solution as well so is there other options so a lot of work has been done on that and, and all the different options of which there are quite a few because you know it could be looking to the grid or renewable options um, but the infrastructure required to support that as i'm sure you can imagine is huge and it's the same in france as well they will need um, a similar amount of electricity um, that they don't currently have how do you think the best way of getting this electricity to the port would be? So we're currently um, looking at a few options, being the grid or some sort of private wire maybe to a renewable solution. There's lots of different options out there. We haven't made a firm decision on which route yet, mainly because they're still still at the start of this work. So what's going to work out best from a carbon perspective, uh, but also from a cost perspective, we don't want the route to become so expensive that customers have to foot the bill. Um, we need to make sure that this is, is done in a, in a way that is still going to be cost effective. So um, things like renewable solutions rather than the grid normally have a cheaper cost throughout the life of that vessel, but a more expensive at the beginning so it's kind of looking at all of those costs and figuring out which is going to be the best solution we know that either way whichever route we go down we've still got to get that huge amount of electricity to the door of either ports and then once you get it through the door we've got to get it through a port and that's the same for calais so it's a quite significant task that we've got on our hands here and a lot of infrastructure will be required we'll basically need an entire new grid system in the port and down to dover this is, uh, yeah, as you say, a huge undertaking and so many moving parts to consider. What's the kind of timeline on this sort of thing? 
I mean, yeah, 2030 is not really that far away in the grand scheme of what we're talking about here. But I mean, as I mentioned, DFDS's ambition is fully electric by 2030. So that is a date that we're working to at the minute to have at least five fully electrics plus the two hybrids we already have. Uh, I think it's fair to say that both the Dover and Calais for the P&O hybrids would like to give it to them much sooner than 2030. And, and, and that's definitely what we're working to. What's the quickest timescale on which we can do this? But even for small upgrades, because of the distance they're going to have to come, it is still looking like it's going to creep close to 2030. And it does look achievable at the minute with a lot of work going in right now. But, the, you know, the Dover-Calais route is responsible uh, for 8% of UK maritime emissions. So for one small route, that's quite a considerable amount of emissions. Even if we can um, have those five fully electrics and the two hybrids by 2030, that's going to reduce the emissions of Dover-Calais, but also just UK maritime emissions. I suppose we have to talk about the uncomfortable uh, question, which is funding. How is this going to be funded? So far, a lot of the work we've done on this has been feasibility studies, and we've been really fortunate that they've been funded through the Department for Transport um, and Innovate UK through the Clean Maritime Demonstration Competition. Funding to actually install them, obviously that's not something that comes from UK government. Interestingly, there's not a single shore power installation in the world that hasn't had government funding of some sort. So that kind of puts in perspective that we're talking about a really big expense, especially for lots of the ports in the UK, trust ports, which we are, which adds another little complexity onto this from a legal perspective. So part of the reason we haven't made decision yet is how do we pay for this as the port do we have to work with our ferry operators to pay for this together can we look for more funding opportunities how how can we fund it it's probably one of our biggest questions at the minute we know there's a little bit more feasibility work we need to do before we're quite ready to actually start installing things mainly around the plug as such as that is the best way to call it so there's lots of shore power systems that exist across the world 30 megawatts per ferry is our best estimate at the minute a- amount into that ferry in 45 minutes is so considerable what that plug's going to look like is, is part of the question we still have how do we find a plug that all three ports can agree on and all three operators because we can't afford to have a separate plug on each berth for each operator that's just too expensive so that's the piece of work we know we need to do next is looking at this plug how do we find a plug that everybody can use that works for everybody that can actually do what we physically need to do because um, there's not many on the market right now that currently do that uh, so that's kind of what we've we've put a bid in under cmdc4 so the clean maritime demonstration competition the fourth round to see if we could start to look at designing that plug uh, because once we've you know fixed that piece of the puzzle we know everything we need to do then in theory it's just a case of starting to install it So everything, from power to policy to even plugs, has to be taken into consideration. It's a daunting task, and honestly made more daunting the more I spoke to people here about it. But throughout all this, the mood from everyone involved is still one of optimism. I'm really optimistic. I mean, we're in a really fortunate position where the key players that need to be involved are all really engaged in this. You know, we've got three operators that have been involved in those feasibility studies we've got three ports that have been as well all the people that need to be involved are really keen and actually want to do something about this and that's quite a lot of the way there already to be honest with you having everybody that sees that this is a necessity we absolutely have to decarbonize this route there's no other option to be honest with you and we all see it that way so we're really optimistic we've got a lot of the feasibility work done now we've just got that little bit left to go um, and there's definitely going to be a way that we can make this work because we, we have to Yeah, completely optimistic that we're going to achieve it. This is an industry that's full of really bright and creative people that really care about climate change. There's also a range of policy and market-based instruments that are driving that change. One is statutory disclosure. When you want to borrow money from investors, banks or venture capitalists or anything like that, they will often ask you questions about what kind of risk you present. Think if you went for a mortgage on a house um, or a loan for a new car or something. Now, if that organisation is producing a shed load of carbon and isn't doing anything about it, 
exit, then those investors would very probably think twice about lending that money. They don't want to get stuck with a stranded asset. They don't want to have someone that's going to default on their loans. So there's a lot of uh, requirements in the UK and internationally about declaring how much carbon you generate and what you're doing about it to reduce it and what your other environmental performance is like. With us in Maritime, we have international, the International Maritime Organisation, which is part of the UN. We have the EU and we also have UK regimes. And there are a lot of different things pushing people to do the right thing. But fundamentally, people are good and fundamentally, people do not want the climate to change or worsen in any way going forward. So on that basis, you know, my faith is in the people to resolve the problems. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now arrived in the port of Dover. On behalf of the captain, the officers and the crew, we would like to thank you for travelling with P&O Ferries and wish you a safe onward journey. And that's where the story ends, for the moment. But I now share much of the optimism of the people on board, knowing now that those at the forefront of shipping decarbonisation have their heads and hearts in the right place. This is what the climate fight really looks like, in places where change can make a real difference. Thank you to Lisa, Peter, Ross, Dimitri and Megan for their insight, and thanks to you for listening. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Will Tingle. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.